This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. Joining me as always, we'll see if he actually says his name today. Hello there. How are you, mate? Leon Logan-Nathan here. Hello. How are you, buddy? Good, good, good. Very compliant this morning. (laughs) Thank you. Much appreciated. It's uh, it was a chilly six degrees here overnight. So um, yeah, we're we're in true siege conditions now, and the body that's getting older is telling me get back to the territory. Right, right. Looking at you, you with the beanie on is a is a sight to, sight to behold. <laughs> I, I look like I should be going to an English Premier League game, don't I? I think so. I think so. <laughs> Meanwhile, here um, and yeah. look uh, again, another plug for you and your. Uh, your side gig uh, selling solar systems, <laughs> mate. Uh, the uh, the app that you uh, got me to, to use on the phone is yep. is indicating that uh, produced fifty kilowatt hours a day every day this week. Wow! So when when I was in my place, which I've currently got rented, but um, while our friends are usually complaining, sort of October through March. Uh, depending on the brutality of the build-up and the wet season, um, I would be sitting down just quietly happy with myself because the more humid and brutal those days, the better the solar production. <laughs> <laughs> the only problem is I think I'm using it all up with the air conditioning, mate. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the point of it. It's not a profit-making exercise per se, and uh, we've discussed your house many times, so... Uh, I'm sure energy consumption is uh, is rife at the best of times. <laughs> so, with the with the solar power system, which is bigger than the average, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> as long as you're covering your costs, it's doing its job. Well, thanks to you, mate. I got it in there in the nick of time. I didn't realise <laughs> the government was going to change the goalposts on us. No, I didn't either. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you you were uh, you were in just in time and. You can sit back and enjoy that now forever, whereas all the newcomers are at this new ridiculous rate. And so do you think that's going to have a, like a devastating effect on um, solar take-up in the territory? Um, well, there's two sides to that. One is that um, for those people that uh, work normal nine to five hours, then... Um, it will be less advantageous for them to have solar now than it would have been mm-hmm. uh, because while the sun's out, uh, as long as you're using the power that you're producing, then really it's neither here nor there. So good for pool pumps. Um, you know, if you put the washing on before you go to work or, you know, you run your dishwasher or something during the day or, or electric hot water, of course, which, which operates around the clock. Um, but for those who are at home, um, whether that sort of, you know, um, I know there's a lot of in-home nannying businesses in Darwin or, um, you know, even just home businesses, um, they'll, they'll get a good advantage from it still because, you know, what you make and use is, is still yours. And again, it's not a profit-making exercise, so it's just about reducing your overall cost, which even with a, a very low feed-in tariff, as long as you're using what you produce, it's it's neither here nor there. So, it's, and I didn't mean to do this, but it's a, I'm just you know, it's a fantastic segue, mate. But if someone wanted to uh, uh, get a quote from you on for solar, mate, how would they find you? 
I would say come to the Territory Story podcast <laughs> Facebook page or Google Peter Gowers Darwin and you'll be find about 500 things with my name and number on it. <laughs> yeah, probably. If, yeah, if they're listening, <laughs> thank you for that. If they're listening to this podcast, just come through Territory Story or Leon. Everybody knows you, mate. So right. just contact Leon and he'll contact me. Well, I can assure you, I, I don't know our next guest. Um, uh, Daniel Kelly uh, is a uh, lecturer at the university, uh, Charles Darwin University in law. And I'm just trying to think how I might have met Daniel through our usual uh, LinkedIn um, platform. And uh, you know what, Daniel? I'm just going to introduce you uh, and you can tell us exactly what happened because I can't remember. So uh, Daniel Kelly, Dr. Daniel Kelly, welcome to the Territory Story podcast. Leon and Peter, thank you very much. Uh, pleasure for me to be here with you. And uh, yeah, you're right. It was LinkedIn. Uh, somehow uh, uh, your name popped up on the, on the handful of names and faces at the top of the screen. So I clicked connect or whatever it was. And, uh, and here we are. Right, right. I love the people you should know options. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. It's like, it's like a game of chance. You put it out there and 46 of my other connections know this person. So... <laughs> There's a good chance we'll connect. <laughs> so, D Daniel, um, we'd like you to uh, tell us your territory story, beginning with where you were born, and um, and you know, take us through as, as slowly as you like to how you got up to the territory. I've had a chance to look at your LinkedIn profile, so I do have some questions along the way, but I'll, I'll let you start. All right, thanks, thanks, Leon. Um, well, I was born in Victoria, uh, in a little country town called Swan Hill which is uh, on the Murray River. And uh, my parents were dairy farmers. And at that time, uh, the dairying business was not all that uh, good. And uh, after I was only a few years old, uh, my parents moved to another part of Victoria, uh, which is Geelong and the Ballerine Peninsula. And that's where I spent most of my uh, childhood growing up down there went to a very standard state school and high school uh, in that area. And uh, when I was 17, I first went to university uh, up in the Big Smoke uh, in Melbourne, which I think I'd visited only once or twice before in my life. And um, got through first year and then really bombed out in second year. Uh, of what? First year of what? Uh, Agricultural science is oh, where I started. Okay. Yeah, Bachelor of yeah, Agriculture. Makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, which was an unusual trend because most first-year students, so most university students sort of drop out in, you know, in their first year. Usually if you get through first year, then uh, you kind of make it. Uh, I managed to just scrape through first year and spectacularly bombed out in second year. Um, and, um, and so then I... I Tried to hang in at uni for a while, I had a couple of jobs, um, and sooner or later I, I ended up 21. And for my 21st birthday, my parents gave me a, a holiday to Bali. Uh, my mum had been there a few times, and um, I had, didn't even know where that was on the map. Uh, I was on the plane going over there, uh, 
somehow I discovered that the country was called Indonesia. Uh, really had no idea at all. There was a, a single A4 page uh, in the back of the um, seat pocket that had some rudimentary Indonesian language words on there. And I picked that up and I thought, oh, that'll be interesting. I took it with me. And when I landed in Bali, I, I still remember now the, the, the very first uh, time I landed going out from the airport in the shuttle bus that took me to the hotel, actually took me to the wrong hotel to start with and then ended up going to the right hotel. And I just remembered the, the streets being uh, crowded and, and even though I was driving past, I, didn't, I wasn't stopping or walking at this stage, but I could just see the, the explosion of goods and people and things for sale and just pouring out of the shops, almost touching the bus, people everywhere, uh, the smells I later learned was a combination of the um, rice uh, uh, hay uh, burning and the gurangaram cigarettes, the, the clove kretak cigarettes. And I just fell in love with the place. I just thought, this is, this is amazing. And um, made friends really quickly there. The, the first guy that I met, um, he was a security guard at the hotel, and he's still a really good friend of mine today. And in the, that's 25, 26 years um, ago. And since then, we've worked together on all sorts of things and so on. So he ended up teaching me um, Indonesian and Balinese languages. And I just took to it like a duck to water. I loved it. I never really tried to learn a language before, uh, but just loved it. And it was only a two-week holiday, but when I got back to... Uh, Melbourne, I I knew where I wanted to be, and it wasn't Melbourne. So uh, I uh, I worked, I saved my money, I think I uh, saved up for about six months or something like that, and I worked out that if I just live, you know, in a very very simple way, that I could stay in um, in Indonesia and, uh, for uh, maybe six months, maybe twelve months, and that's what I did. On my Second trip to Indonesia, I'd only been there um, a little while, two or three weeks. And uh, I was in a little cafe and there was this um, young girl who had walked um, out of the kitchen door past the till and the most amazing thought came into my mind and that is, that's the mother of my children. <laughs> and I know it's crazy, and and I was 21, and I certainly wasn't looking uh, looking at having children or getting married or anything like that, and uh, but it was just amazing, just and I could not get my eyes off her, and I could not uh, uh, think about much else other than uh, her, and the short story is, we two years later we ended up marrying, so. Uh, wow. I ended up spending most of the next two years in Bali. I, when I ran out of money, I went back to Australia and and uh, saved up again and and, uh, and so on. But yeah, I worked in Bali while I was there. And uh, at the end of that two years, we came back to Australia. Uh, we had to elope. We we tried to get married uh, in Bali, but um, due to the um, the culture there, um, my wife. Uh, wasn't allowed to marry me and so we uh, 
we eloped. We ran back to Australia, um, managed to get a passport for her, and uh, a month later uh, in Victoria, um, we got married. So that's sort of the first bit of my life, and we, we've been married just for a, a little while. Um, uh, I was uh, um, working the glorious job of being a stable hand in my uh, parents' uh, farm. Uh, my job was shoveling manure. And uh, <laughs> start at the bottom, right, right at the very bottom, uh, and um, and then after a while, uh, my dad said to me, "Well, now that you're married, you better get a serious job." And he was going to try and organise uh, for me to get a job at the um, Alcoa, at the local aluminium smelter, where he had worked for probably about twenty years of his life. And when he said that, uh, a, a bit of horror went through me. And uh, I, I thought, well, um, I'd better go back to uni and try and uh, do something um, else. And I did. I went back. And this time I took a Bachelor of Arts with an Indonesian language major. And so I, my Indonesian was actually already quite fluent by that time. So it was a, it was a pretty easy um, progression. And I ended up as a, an Indonesian teacher. So I'd done that for a couple of years. Um, we had our first two children. And one of my Indonesian lecturers uh, was, used to be a teacher in, here in Darwin. So I was studying in, um, in Victoria, Deakin University. Uh, but he was telling me about his time up here in Darwin. And, uh, what was his name? He, Alastair Welsh. And uh, his, his wife was also an Indonesian teacher up here, Julianne Welsh. And so he told me all about Darwin. And I thought, that's the place for me. Uh, at that stage, the, the internet was still pretty <laughs> new to me. And so I found out what I could. Uh, I, I found a little bit of um, a, 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 some of the institutions of the place. I actually subscribed to the NT newspaper and I... I had it in Victoria um, probably for about a, a year or so but before we actually ended up moving up here. And, um, and so uh, my first job was in Catherine, at Catherine High School. And I was teaching um, Aboriginal kids there who were sort of 13, 14, 15 years old but uh, hadn't gone through the mainstream school. And... Uh, and then after six months, uh, we moved to Darwin and I was uh, teaching at the, at, at that time it used to be called the Northern Territory School of Languages. And I was coordinating language classes as well as teaching a bit of Indonesian. And we bought our house here in Darwin where I am sitting today and... Uh, Where's so that? that? It, look, it looks very yeah. Indonesian. <laughs> yes, I'm thinking rural area, am I right? No, no, Nakara. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm yeah. loving the bird life in the background, Daniel. Sorry to digress. Yeah. Well, look, we're really blessed here in the car. We have fantastic bird life. And yeah. you have to walk first thing in the morning, just on dawn. It's, it's an orchestra. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place. We're, we've, we've grown all our kids up here and, yeah, it's been great. 
and that's my handiwork in the background. <laughs> <laughs> the the red doors is that what they are? That sort of yeah, yeah, doors? yeah. Very, very sort of Indonesian. Uh, it reminds me of Indonesia at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's it. We we got to Darwin, and um, when we arrived here, we had um, our first two kids, and. Uh, uh, they went to the local schools here. Oh, so your children weren't born in Melbourne. They were born in Darwin. No, um, no actually, three of them were born in, in, uh, in Victoria. Right. Uh, our fourth was born here in Darwin. Okay. So, yeah, so the, the first two were born when we moved here. Yeah. And we'd been here for a few years and I was teaching at different places. And uh, a job came up back in Indonesia. And so I went and did that for a couple of years, and that was a, a, a great opportunity. Um, teaching English, actually, mostly I was training uh, Indonesian teachers so that they could teach English. And that was in Java. And then the uh, tsunami hit in uh, Aceh. 2002. Uh, 2004. 2004, that's right, yeah. Yeah, four. And so then there was the rehabilitation, reconstruction phase, and I, I in Aceh, and I went from Java to uh, to Aceh and worked on a project there, and then came back to Darwin after being there for a couple of years, and the the whole time that, uh, since I, I graduated from um, the, my Bachelor of Arts, I'd also been studying law part time. And by the time I got back from Indonesia, I'd finished that. And actually, sorry, I, I did my last year um, after I got back. And then I started work with the, um, at NAJA, uh, North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, which is the Aboriginal aid, uh, legal aid firm up here. Wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, I got to travel to almost every uh, remote community in the top end of the Northern Territory um, went to a few in the centre as well. Uh, it was a great job uh, and I got to see the Territory like never before. Met some amazing people and, uh, and after I'd been there for uh, a couple of years, I think, um, one of my old lecturers uh, in law school, who's now Professor David Price, came in and tapped me on the shoulder one day and, and, uh, and told me I had to go back and teach. And uh, I very gladly did. And uh, so yeah, the last 10 years I've spent as a lecturer at the, in the law school uh, at CDU. And uh, again, great opportunities, uh, a, a lot of, enabled me to travel back to Indonesia a lot and, and teach in Indonesian universities and collaborate with a lot of people over there. So, yeah, I ended up doing my PhD, uh, which was in Aboriginal law, uh, and again, connects well back into um, Bali and to in other parts of Indonesia, because customary law is a, is a big matter over there and, and, and quite... Uh, uh, a live area of um, legal research and uh, and practice. What was your thesis in? Uh, Abri Aboriginal law. Focus. So it was a comparison between the nature of authority in um, Aboriginal legal system of uh, Arnhem Land, the, the Yongle uh, legal system, 
and uh, Christianity and uh, Australian law. So it was a, a comparative um, look at the nature of authority. And that, that came out of my work at Naja. Uh, I, so often I had the experience of in, uh, being in a remote community and people were torn between which system of authority they should be um, following or they should be allowing to uh, uh, form their, their choices. So you'd have something like a funeral and uh, there, would, there would be matters of Australian law that would impinge upon that, um, as in where the person was allowed to be buried and inheritance and so on. Uh, matters of Aboriginal law as to who had a right to conduct the ceremony and so on. And matters of Christianity, and as you know, probably, I forget what the stats are, but three quarters, maybe 80% or more of the Aboriginal people uh, describe themselves as Christians. And there are parts of Christianity that, um, that, uh, that, that say something different again. And so it was, it was my common experience when I was at Naja that um, a, very often a lot of um, Aboriginal people in remote communities were torn between these three systems that they wanted, they wanted to be able to keep everyone happy. They wanted to be able to follow everything, but there was certain clashes at some point. So that was my thesis, sort of focused on the the nature of authority of those three systems. And what sort of conclusions did you come to? Uh, that it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, seriously, I, I can actually summarise the, the conclusion in, in two main ways. One, there are some things that are simply not reconcilable between the three systems. Nevertheless, each of those systems uh, is agreeable to settling disputes by mediation rather than litigation or, or an equivalent. And so the upshot is that we really should be pursuing mediation and uh, by extension that could include into uh, criminal matters. Um, even though I know there's not much of an appetite for that um, amongst uh, non-Aboriginal lawyers, but I, I think it's really a matter of um, us non-Aboriginal lawyers. Uh, we should be trying a bit harder to understand what's the, uh, what, what is the nature of justice, what is the, the communal hope for a peaceful society. Uh, and if we do that, we might change our thinking a bit. And so you did that PhD... Uh, through Charles Darwin University. That's right. And your supervisor for your thesis was based here in CDU? Yeah, yeah. we have three supervisors. Right. And they're all in, in, in Darwin or did you have yes. some interstate? No, yes. all in Darwin. No, they're all in Darwin. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of my supervisors ended up being interstate towards the end, but they all started here. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking those sort of questions is I'm just trying to figure out whether the people that actually examined you on your thesis uh, you know, have certain skill sets outside of law that you know that that are brought to bear on 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 the research that you're doing. Yeah, sure. Um, that, well, there's there's the supervisors and there's the examiners. So they're yeah. um, they're different people, yeah. and there are three of each: three supervisors and three um, examiners. So the um, the supervisors um, had skills in um, law. Uh, anthropology, 
cultural studies. And the examiners, uh, similar, uh, different people, but um, had a, a expertise in comparative law, uh, uh, anthropology, um, theology. Um, yeah, and so yes, a, a, a range of sets, which you need to for that sort of thesis. It's a, it's a multidisciplinary thesis. Did you find it uh, rigorous? Um, rigorous, yes, I found it, um, but I found it really satisfying. Uh, mm. And the the tip that I always give to others who are doing a PhD or, or something smaller, even even a a, a small research paper, five thousand words, ten thousand words, uh, choose the subject that really fascinates you personally, uh, because when everyone else is sick of it, you're still <laughs> And you will still have that internal motivation to keep going. <laughs> and so I, I did that. I, I, I really didn't care what anyone else uh, thought of the topic. It was, it was something that I personally was fascinated. And so I pursued it. Uh, didn't drag on, got it done on time. Um, and just, yeah, it was great. If, um, I'd be happy to do uh, um, more and more. It was it was a really satisfying thing to do. Mm, I think from a um, a, a non lawyer's point of view, um, it's interesting to hear those words because, like you, I'm I'm originally from down south and and Victoria, and you know it's interesting talking to people about the Northern Territory, and and I've spent a lot of time in North Queensland as well. Uh, you know um, the the, the different indigenous people in in those places because it's so difficult for people from down south to understand you know as you just said there's there's white man's law there's black fellas law there's the country's law there's things in between and it's it's forever that tightrope of trying to work out well you know as you say it's it's an ongoing conundrum between which one do i follow trying to do the right thing by everything yeah. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that I've, I've said a lot to, to my friends. It's, it's really hard to sum up the situation with Indigenous people because it's so complex. It's not as simple as right, wrong. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, and, and notwithstanding that, and I agree with all of that, uh, I think that we, from a policy perspective, you know, we could have a lot more um, success in this area. We, there are, I see there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that if we just had a little bit of understanding and goodwill, we could make some really big gains on. Hmm. I just want to take you back a little bit, uh, Daniel, because there's a few uh, areas uh, that, that uh, I'd like to fill. Uh, do you have any brothers and sisters? I do. I yeah. have one of each. Right, older or younger? Both younger. Right, so you you were the oldest in uh, uh, growing up. Obviously, went to university first. What did the other two end up doing? Um, my my brother's uh, eighteen months younger than me, and yeah. my sister's ten years younger. Uh, when I first went to university, I was the first person ever on all sides of the family to ever go to university. 
uh, my brother was never going to go to university. I think he left school in year 10 and um, worked for my dad uh, for a long time. Uh, my dad's a racehorse trainer. And so he worked with him. Uh, he went overseas. He worked in Dubai. He worked in Japan uh, with racehorses. And uh, eventually came back to Victoria. And after I had been here for about maybe 10 years, something like that, it's been 20 years now, he decided to make the move north. And so he now lives in Darwin as well, uh, <laughs> only about one kilometre from my house. Uh, so that's great. And my sister, um, she finished year 12 but didn't go to university, uh, did a few different things. Again, worked um, for mum and dad, um, worked in, in other, uh, in a stud, a racehorse stud um, for a while. And... Um, and eventually she did go to university and she just completed her nursing degree last year. And so she's now uh, something like the nurse in charge at a, um, uh, an aged care facility in Victoria. And so it happens that our grandfather is there who's oh, wow. years old. Wow. How old, sir? 100. Gosh. Yeah. Right. Has, he, has he got his letter yet? <laughs> yes, yes. He got, oh, cool. Yeah, got one from the Queen and got one from the Pope as well. So, wow. Yeah. One, one may be worth more than the other these days. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to go down for his birthday, um, but uh, I, I took ill and I was in um, Royal Down Hospital for 10 days last year, right when his birthday was being held. But at least my wife and our kids got to go down. Wow. And so your, your wife is uh, Indonesian, yes. Balinese, Balinese. Yeah, Balinese. Right. right, okay. And you have four children. Four, that's right. How old are they now? Our eldest is 22 and our youngest is nine. And the other two? Uh, oh, <laughs> I got him. <laughs> come on, Leon, it's not that easy to remember. I always, and it's always, so, so the, the youngest and oldest are both boys and the girls, I always get their ages wrong and they kill me for it. <laughs> my, so my oldest daughter, this is going to be terrible. Okay, actually, I can figure it out. 21. <laughs> oh, that wasn't that hard. That wasn't that difficult. 22 or 21? 20 or 20. No, she's, oh, goodness me. That's really <laughs> <laughs> and you want and you, and you want to run for politics here? Ninety-nine. <laughs> I won't forget that. So actually, she's twenty. Right there. Wow, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> and I remember when I don't know, maybe she was fourteen or fifteen. Uh, I introduced her to someone. And I said, "Yeah, this is my daughter," and um, and she's twelve. And she stood on my foot and gave me the dirtiest look. Because, you know, like when you're 14, <laughs> it's abhorrent to be called 12. So, uh, and our third daughter is 15. Right. So 15, 20, 22, and nine. Gosh, right. Yeah. And do they have Balinese names or are they all? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they do. do. Their middle names are all Balinese names. Right, right. And do they speak Balinese or Indonesian? Yeah, yeah, they, they do um, to different um, extents. Our, our eldest um, son um, is uh, quite functional in Indonesian and um, 
a smattering, a little bit of Balinese, enough to be cheeky. Um, our second daughter, uh, not so much. Um, our third daughter, she actually started off speaking only Indonesian and Balinese. Um, she, she spent her first two years in Indonesia. It was the, at the time that we were working back over there. And when she came back, we came back to Darwin and it was great because she just kept speaking Indonesian all the time. We got this great little video uh, of her uh, saying in Indonesian, look, mum, it's a playground. Let's go and play over there. And <laughs> we, we tease her until now about that because, you know, she had a very cute voice and, and uh, mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then when she went to um, uh, preschool, almost overnight she switched from Indonesian and, and Balinese to English. And it was, it was amazing. And after that happened, I did a little bit of research on that and found out that actually happens quite a bit. Um, so, uh, and she's studying Indonesian now at school. And our youngest, he's nine. We spent three months in Bali last year and um, probably language is not his forte. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you have a lot of uh, commonality uh, with, with Peter Gowers because, uh, uh, you know, you, you've given Peter a run for, for, for his money in terms of uh, children. Okay. Uh, and then uh, also... Um, there's some horse racing connections there, which I know Pete's pretty interested in as well, as well as a connection to Victoria. So, it's true. <laughs> it's very true, uh, and and a connection to getting out of the cold. And <laughs> true. What happened, though, Pete? You're back in the cold now. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. That that that's part of the how you almost caught me with the children. Uh, number five was born down this way, and. Um, yeah, I, I, as Leon knows, and I guess our listeners know now, I was all set to to come back not that long ago, and um, this damn virus has has kept me here. So uh, we we probably stayed a fair bit longer than we intended initially, but um, yeah, we're sort of on hold now until uh, our skies open up again or our, our borders become a bit freer to get in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But wow. it's uh, yeah, it's. It, I mean, we, we sort of talk about weather a lot in Australia, but, but also in, in the Territory. I mean, it's, it's so unique and so different to, you know, down south. But it's, um, we were talking to someone the other day about the cold of New South Wales and you just don't realise how cold it is until you're in it. And as I said uh, before we started recording, you know, got to six degrees here overnight and my shoulders literally started hurting just out of nowhere because clearly whatever threshold needed to drop past that the the temperature did but people would say to me mate because victorians are very like that as you'd know oh i couldn't live in that sort of humid heat and i'm like you know what i'll take sweat and hot and humid in october november any day of the week over less than five degrees and that bloody annoying drizzle that you get in Victoria. It's not yeah. enough to rain. Yeah. It's just enough to make you cold and damp and give you the flu and colds yeah. and whatever. And, and the cold wind. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that sideways rain. I, I always remember in Forrest Gump, he'd talk about the different types of rain and uh, the, the sideways rain, it, uh, it's, it's so unique when you get that just, you know, it, it's, like, yeah. it's like a mist. It's not even quiet rain. It's like a mist and the wind and it just hits your side on and it's shocking. Anyway. I remember every winter growing up, I would have bronchitis. Yeah, yep, same. Definite. No, and the, the first year of my life that I didn't have bronchitis was the first winter that I spent in Bali. Wow. And, and then the second year, I was also in Bali, so no bronchitis. The third year uh, we, uh, was when we got married and I was back in Victoria, got bronchitis again. Yeah. And had that, we were in Victoria something like five years before we moved to Darwin. Yeah. And uh, sure as, you know, sure as the day is long, when I was down there in winter, I'd have bronchitis. And up here in Darwin, I've never had bronchitis. Well, well I have a bad back, Daniel. And, and I, offer, well, I use crutches to get around. And um, I, I, I went to see my surgeon the last, uh, the last winter that I was in Victoria permanently before this little stint. And I went in there just thinking, okay, well, this is going to be under the knife, 12 months recovery, you know, at least, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he just said to me, he goes, look, I'm not going to touch you. Um, the, the actual problem that you have is not worse as a result of any of this. It's just the cold weather. Right. Um, you know, in summer it'll be better. I then moved into commercial radio, which took me all over Australia and all over the world. And I eventually settled in Darwin in 2002 or thereabouts. And, you know, the, the injury will never repair, but the pain went away. Mm. That beautiful mm. warm weather, it's like it's non-existent. And, you know, I was playing golf again and I w wasn't quite doing, you know, double backflips with, with uh, a twist. But it's just, you, you can't really imagine that, that cold weather getting into your bones until you live it again. Yeah, yeah, true. Well, Daniel, uh, you mentioned your 100-year-old uh, grandfather got a letter from the Pope. Yep. I see here on your, on your uh, LinkedIn profile that you, uh, in addition to a law degree and an arts degree, you also um, did some study, Bible studies. Uh-huh. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, that was from the uh, Bible College of Western Australia correspondence course. And uh, it was something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. And essentially the, the other courses that I could see were available, um, I, I didn't think were the sort of thing that I wanted to do, but um, eventually uh, managed to find that course and, and really enjoyed it. And, it's the sort of course that um, any Christian would gain a lot from. So it was, um, it was sort of, it was organised and, and formal, but it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't overly onerous, but it was certainly uh, a worthwhile thing to do. So am I right in saying that your grandfather was Catholic? You, you may have been raised a Catholic, but then you switched to Christianity? Would that oh. be... Well, well, I'm still a Catholic. Oh, you still? Okay. <laughs> Catholics are Christians, Leon. <laughs> okay, sorry. Pardon me. Pardon I know, my ignorance. I know, I know other Christians think that they're, um, you know, in, in their own little world, but uh, 
that, that goes back to my Catholic upbringing as well. Thank you, Leo. <laughs> there you go. So you guys are very well connected. <laughs> well, um, so, Daniel, I'm just trying to connect the dots here, uh, and I will get to Terry Mills in just a minute. Uh, Daniel, the name, D-A-N-I-A-L, that intrigued me a little bit. Where's that? What's that all about? Well, uh, when I grew up, uh, growing up, I was, I was not called Daniel. Uh, I was called uh, Dan... Danny, uh, maybe some other. Thing. <laughs> 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 um, but you know, I, I was I was born in 1972, and and I, I never had uh, like a um, student card or anything like that. I never had any form of identification growing up in um, rural Victoria until I went to get my driver's license, and and then I found out my name's. Daniel and it was like well that's news to me (laughs) (laughs) and and so ever since then every time I filled out my name for a form for something or other um, I put down my name and so um, now I'm Daniel and um, after I had become known as Daniel for some time I asked my mum how come it's spelt D-A-N-I-A-L. And she said, well, that's how you spell Daniel. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, everyone else is spelled D-A-N-I-E-L. And she said, oh, that's because I wanted you to be different. <laughs> <laughs> I know. My my mum my passed away a few years ago, but um, I, I know that her spelling was not the best. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, D-A-N-I-A-L. Right. Yeah, that's oh. it. And, uh, my middle name is uh, Terence, uh, with, um, and my father's name is Terence Daniel. But um, oh. both Daniel and Terence in my name are spelt different to the Terence and Daniel in my father's name. So, right. Wow. So when she was filling out the paperwork, she didn't think to look at her husband's ID. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like, you know, I don't, maybe he didn't even have any back then. I don't know. Right, right. It's a different world to, to now. And, um, yeah, first time I ever saw my, my full name was, was 17. Uh, as I said, trying to get my learner's permit and I had to get a birth certificate. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It was surprising. There you go. Well, it's, a, it's an intriguing mystery, and I'm glad we've, uh, we've uh, solved it here on the Terry Story podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, let's talk about politics. You've, um, you've had an incredible life, I have to say, Daniel. It's been quite a, quite a joy listening to your story uh, and the fact that, you know, you failed uni to start off with, but then you came back and ended up doing a PhD should be testament to any kid out there that struggles to begin with uh, not to give up and, you know, at some point in time take the opportunity to revisit education because they never know what they can actually achieve. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, ten years or so as a lecturer at, in academia, um, you and Terry Mills have obviously got Indonesian uh, in common. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and uh, I know Terry is, is, is a religious man himself, but uh, a different uh, persuasion of religion. Uh, it's a different strain of Christianity. Uh, how did you guys end up together? Yeah, uh, a mutual friend connected us. Um, a friend of mine who I, I used to work with in Darwin. Yeah. Uh, I introduced him to Indonesia and he hasn't been back since. <laughs> He's been there about well, maybe 15 years now. And he works in Jakarta and he met Terry when Terry was in Jakarta and said to, to Terry, when he gets back to Darwin, he should look me up and uh, just catch up and say good day. And so he did. So the first time I met Terry Mills was um, once he, he had left politics and uh, he just trying to think now. No, he'd, he'd also, he, he had been the uh, NT government's uh, commissioner to uh, ASEAN in, um, in Jakarta but, and that had finished as well. And so he was looking at a couple of um, private projects in Indonesia uh, to do with education. So I caught up with him for coffee and uh, we just clicked straight away. Started working on those um, education projects, uh, and um, as I got to know him, uh, it was obvious to me that he's he has more to to offer uh, in terms of politics and government here in the territory, and um, and now here we are, Territory Alliance. So, you, did you always want to be a politician, or? When, how did that happen? Uh, when I was younger, probably oh, roughly maybe before I got married or soon after I got married, um, I started to get a bit interested in, in politics, but not, not strongly. Uh, but after I'd been married for a few years, experienced you know, working um, and Bit of responsibility, the young family, and all that sort of thing, uh, and just getting a bit older, I, I started to get more interested in politics. And uh, I read um, the Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. And after that, I joined the Labor Party, and I, I just thought that people who really struggle. Um, should be helped by government and those who do well by themselves should be allowed to do well by themselves. But in terms of a role for government, I just saw that um, uh, there, there is a, a, a need to be um, uh, caring. There is a need to be uh, helpful uh, to, to those who struggle. And so the Labor Party's philosophy um, was what appealed to me uh, at the time. It was, I, I also read their uh, sort of their history, uh, the history of the Labor Party in, in Australia, which is called um, the, the Light on the Hill. And, and it just very much aligned with me. And uh, when I moved to Darwin in 2001, uh, I met up with some... Uh, guys in the Labor Party here and actually helped uh, uh, put up some core flutes um, for a, a few of the Labor uh, <laughs> candidates who um, 
Uh, I don't think they, they knew that I put up their core flutes. Um, uh, member for Nightcliff and member for, uh, I think it was Milner or maybe it was already Johnson back then. And, um, and started to get, attend uh, branch meetings. Um, and that's when Claire Martin's government um, won. And I stayed a member of the Labor Party for a few years, but not a long time. I, I didn't find it satisfying. And when I left, I just didn't renew my membership. And I just, my, my interest in politics waned. And uh, I've, I've just not been active in that area for um, something like 15 years. Uh, met Terry about five years ago and as I said to, to start off with um, was not in a political um, sense but um, as I got to know Terry more and I could see that um, he uh, really should be contributing more in that area uh, uh, I've traveled alongside with him uh, in that and uh, and we formed Territory Alliance which is um, a, a, it's a new type of political party. It's, uh, it's, it doesn't, and, and I think it's a bit difficult for people to sort of grasp what is it. Uh, the fact is that we're not ideologically driven. Um, it's not a new version of the CLP. It's not an alternative to Labor. It's, it's just a very different thing. It's a, uh, you can call it middle, uh, middle of the road, common sense um, but the fact is what we're looking for is uh, solutions to problems here in our part of the world and and if that solution is is described traditionally as a more of something that's on the right or something on the that comes from the left so be it it's it's not it's not relevant it's not what uh, we're not looking to implement a a leftist ideology or a, or a conservative ideology. We want things that, that um, solve problems for us here in the Northern Territory. And we all know this is a very, very unique context. So, um, yeah, so that's where we're at now. And, and we, we don't have any issue with the, the, the traditions of the, of the left and the right. I can see they've contributed, both have, have contributed enormously in, in other contexts, in other times in other parts of the world. But when I look at our part of the world now, it's Northern Territory, 2020, I, I don't uh, think that a, a, uh, just a conservative or just a progressive approach is what we, or all of us considered, um, uh, really uh, would benefit from. So, Daniel... Um Let's, let's shoot for the stars. Come August, Territory Alliance wins government in the Northern Territory. What are the top three things that you're going to do to set it onto the path that it needs to be on? Uh, general or specific? Completely up to you. Um, the whole coronavirus thing has um, sort of uh, muffled the, uh, the, the economic and, and, uh, and uh, community crime issues that um, everyone was pointing to before uh, 
the virus became what the only thing that people talk about. Um, you can all see the trajectory of that is uh, dropping. Uh, thank God, that's great that we're uh, our situation um, in the Northern Territory. Uh, and um, after the election, of course, there will be a remnant um, issue of that. But I think whoever is the government, and hopefully it is us, it is Territory Alliance, we will need to be focused uh, on the, um, not on the on the containment and, and, uh, and the eradication, but the, the build, the, the rebuild. And so those economic and social issues are still there. Um, we... We have a, uh, in, in terms of um, community crime, it's, it's not only youth, but that's a big component of it. We have a, a, a current system that, that lacks the basic um, impact of teaching that some things are wrong and you shouldn't do it. And uh, these are the consequences. People are hurt, people are impacted, people have a negative experience when they experience crime. You shouldn't do it. And so our policy is aimed at um, getting offenders to go back and make up for the thing that they've done wrong in some way. If, they've, if it's been graffiti, go back with a scrubbing brush, clean it off. Uh, if it's um, breaking into the house and you've, I saw um, Jason Hannah's uh, mum's flat got broken into, uh, the fly wire is ripped, um, pay for it. Go back and fix it up. Make amends in some way. And so part of the... The, um, the penalty has that um, uh, recompense component to it. It's, it's not, of course, part of it is punitive, but the bigger picture is to try and teach that this is our society. This is our community. When you do the wrong thing, it really hurts people. Go back and fix it up with the hope that you, you learn that and you don't do it again. So that's part of that. Various um, tweaks to that, we uh, will establish the community court, which um, is, is a magistrate. Uh, essentially, it's a, a new lower level of court and it will be embedded in the community. It will be more like a, a, a round table. Rules of evidence will be uh, relaxed, akin to how we used to do community courts um, 10, 15 years ago, uh, where... Everyone who's affected, all stakeholders, get the opportunity to speak and speak freely. And the reason is because the experience that I have and many other um, lawyers in this area uh, is that a greater sense of justice is, is, is done, is accomplished it, it, um, for, for all people, whether they're offenders, victims or, or others in the community. So uh, that's a major Project. It, it includes um, different things in different places. So, for example, in Alice Springs, uh, Robin Lamley has a lot, of, a lot of support there for a curfew. Now, I haven't heard anyone in um, Darwin or Palmerston um, call for a curfew, and that's one thing that will uh, uh, that, that a Territory Alliance government will become known for is that is not trying to um, uh, transplant solutions from somewhere else into local context, but whatever's the right solution in a particular context, the people who live and in, invested in that area, for them to come up with the solutions and and try them. And if they look different in Alice Springs compared to Gullawinku and different again compared to Palmerston, so be it. That's fine. So that's one. Uh, in terms of the economy, 
the the single biggest thing that I think we need to do is to uh, is to recapture confidence. Uh, government is already has an extremely large public debt. Uh, we need to be sensible about uh, uh, not about containing that uh, and we need to show a, a clear plan going forward that um, that government is responsible not just wasting money so uh, but confidence is also in terms of um, sorry creating confidence for the business sector um, by a, a government committed to uh, removing unnecessary bureaucratic processes or in some of the cases, the processes that are so much longer here compared to just next door in Western Australia or Queensland. So targets for um, uh, faster results so that, gov so that business understand that, that this government actually uh, is open for business. It doesn't mean um, reducing standards. It doesn't mean cutting corners. It just means uh, getting on with the job uh, quickly properly uh, and instilling that confidence. And then the third thing is um, the social impact that this um, coronavirus has had. We, we've had, we, we probably enjoyed maybe the best lifestyle in the world here. And in the last month, uh, that's all been taken from us. So we need to make sure that the fullness of the lifestyle that we, that we cherish here um, is, uh, reinstated and uh, obviously uh, the sensible approach to that is in a staged uh, return. The last thing we want is a, a spread of, of the virus but people need to see that there is a, a, a not too distant uh, end to this uh, and uh, because without hope um, you know people lose the, the desire to to invest, invest their lives, invest their time, invest their money, uh, encourage their children to, um, to take the next step and so on. So that would be the three things. Um, focus on, uh, on uh, a safe community, addressing those specific uh, uh, criminal um, behaviours that we see that seem to be not just out of control but really lacking consequences for. So we want to just reinstill that. You, know, you do the wrong thing, it's, it's important that you learn that, that that has a really bad impact on people. Do this activity so that you learn that is the wrong way uh, and, and let's, let's get on with it. Number two, the economic side of it, sensible government, um, fiscally responsible, fiscally conservative uh, and uh, making a big effort to... Um, give confidence to business. And then number three, uh, the social side of things, getting back our, our pristine lifestyle, the, the thing that, uh, that all of us love here. Well, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, Daniel, that you might be very well qualified for this job because obviously your experience in dealing with the uh, Indigenous sector, uh, you know, working for Niger, uh, would be useful. 
having a background in law is useful, coming from the country is useful, having a connection to Indonesia is useful. I mean, you tick a lot of boxes there. Uh, my, um, my, I guess my concern with some of the things that you're saying is comes from in part having heard a lot of this before, uh, you know, from other politicians, from other side. And look, and the other thing too that I quite like about your experience is, you know, you have, you have some experience with the Labour Party, which I think is very useful, but you also talk like a conservative. I, I, people want to, to, to move to the sensible centre. In fact, I think the sensible centre is probably the quietest part of the uh, electorate, mm-hmm. you, yep. you know. Um, we hear a lot from the, the loony right and, and a lot from the loony left. And I think the yep. problem is we seem to be pulled in both those directions when yep. most of us really want to stay in the middle. Yeah. Um, having said that, one of the difficulties that I think most of us Territorians have had with government, be it Labour or CLP, is, is neither party seems to have any kind of useful, practical control over the public service. It seems like we get politicians that get up there that want to change the world, you know, want to uh, want to make things better, easier, cut the red tape and all that. I mean, we've heard that from, from Labour heaps yeah. of times. But they just can't control the growth or the budgets in the public service. Yeah. Uh, right now is probably an awkward time to be talking about that because we all know had it not been for the uh, universal basic income that's paid to the uh, public service, the Northern Territory would be in a lot deeper trouble than we are in. Sure. You know, yeah. you, talk, you talk about the uh, uh, changes, you know, going back to the lifestyle that we had. You know, I don't feel that our lifestyle has changed all that much under COVID-19. Yes, the, uh, the restaurants are shut down and yes, the pubs are shut down. That's a big deal. I get that. But... You know, none of the, most of the public servants I know of are going to work. Uh, they haven't been told to stay at home. Um, you can pretty much go out and about and do your business with a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, you know um, I guess, policing of social distancing and particularly in the supermarkets and all that type of thing. So I suspect that that will eventually um, come to a natural end at some point in time, particularly when we get a, a vaccination for this virus, but you talked about the, the fundamental issues affecting the territory and crying 100% is one of those things and Robin Lamley 100% is right to be going completely nuts about what's happening in Alice Springs. Uh, we, Peter and I spoke about the, the four um, um, Indigenous youth that were running amok out at the Palmerston Library a few months ago. Yeah. And the that. fact that, that there was not much anyone could do about that. You're talking about restorative justice, I think, is, you know, in the way you sort of describe what should happen there. I would have thought Labour would and should have been able to sort all this out under their philosophy, under the way they approach things. The CLP certainly tried to do it, but they did it in the opposite end by throwing everyone in jail and, and, and assuming that that was going to sort out the problem. Although having spoken to John Elfrick at length on this podcast, 
I certainly came about feeling that John had some pretty good things happening there. Sure, that sentence to a job is, is great. And, and Labor's kept that going and Territory Alliance will keep that going as well. So why do we have such a massive crime problem? Um, or at least a perception of one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's a few things there. Um, if, if I can just back up a little bit and just ask, uh, just to answer your, your question generally, like what would, what would a Territory Alliance government do that would be different to previous governments? Um, one is that our candidates uh, have all been successful in various areas of life, the professions, in, in, in um, different types of industries, and, um, and are used to setting targets, accomplishing goals, hitting deadlines, and, and accomplishing that sort of reform. And we, you would see Territory Alliance ministers as being very hands-on in the daily, uh, in, the, in the programs, in the oversight, in the, in the involvement uh, of the departments that they are uh, giving oversight to, uh, as opposed to you know, senior public servants really running the show and, uh, and ministers sort of turning up and cutting ribbons and so on. So that's one uh, general difference that you would see with the Territory Alliance government. But specifically to the criminal um, stuff, uh, I, I believe that we have a, a, a fundamental mismatch between the way we do criminal justice here in the Northern Territory and most of the people who are affected by that. So what I mean by that is 85% of our prison population is Aboriginal, uh, but only 30% of the, of the general population is Aboriginal. And, and everyone knows that it's, it's overwhelmingly Aboriginal people that are caught up in the criminal justice system here. But we have a system that is essentially comes from England. And, uh, you know, obviously it's an Australian system, um, but our, our legal system, as you know, comes from England. There are very, various things that are uh, uh, instrumental or that are held dearly and in the uh, mainstream legal system, and that one of them is the rules of evidence. Uh, as you know, the, 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 the most fun you can have as a barrister is, uh, is, is arguing that stuff in court. But it's extremely disempowering to the people who it actually affect, the, um, the victims, uh, the offenders, and the Aboriginal communities that uh, are the, other, the rest of the stakeholders. Because all they see is a handful of non-Aboriginal people dressed up, saying sort of clever-sounding things, and at the end, there's some sort of uh, result, and sometimes people go to Berrima, go to jail. Um, there's, there's really almost no meaningful engagement between the people um, who are affected by the criminal justice system and, and the criminal justice system itself. Basically, we've got, uh, and, and our criminal justice system, as part of their broader system, if you measure it in terms of, um, of, what it, of, of its, um, uh, you know, the veracity of, of how evidence is weighed uh, by the quality of argument of counsel uh, and uh, the, the intellect and the, uh, the, the research ability uh, and the integrity of our judiciary, it's excellent. It's excellent, but it's, it, it doesn't deliver much justice to the people who are impacted by it. And so there's this mismatch. 
So it's something that came out of my time in Naja uh, and again came out of my, my PhD research is that the, the mainstream way of doing justice in, in Aboriginal contexts just isn't very effective. So what is more effective? Well, for some time we had what were called the community courts and, and um, sometimes they're called bush courts. It's, it's a bit unhelpful because actually they were never officially known as community courts or bush courts. They were always known as the, uh, the court of summary jurisdiction at that time before it became the local court. And there were magistrates who were sitting around uh, in, in the communities at different times while the court was being heard. But essentially it was the same process that you have in Darwin exported to the Aboriginal communities and the same type of justice was delivered. There was almost, and until now, there's almost nothing in terms of availability of diversionary programs that are meaningful to teach people when they've done the wrong thing that they need to uh, make up for that. There, there are consequences. Uh, if we just look at that in terms of the, the younger offenders, the uh, Youth Justice Act and Bail Act, uh, sorry, the Youth Justice Act is the primary one here, uh, warning after warning after warning after warning, and then maybe eventually some time in jail. And, and never has there been any requirement in that whole process for the offender to actually go back and make up for what they've done wrong. And so that's, that's a key difference in the, the ch in, in the changes, the community justice um, policy that we have. Can I just ask you a question right there? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. am not an expert in this area of law, but I did have uh, cause to look at some of the changes to the Youth uh, Justices Act recently that were passed. One of the things that struck me about that was the number, the amount of consultation that was done, right? Now, one thing about Labor, you can criticise them a lot for a lot. You cannot criticise them for consulting because they just do it till the nth degree, right? There were plenty of submissions that were put in by NAJA and by other Aboriginal organisations and all the rest of it in relation to those changes that came through in the legislation. So... Why aren't those organisations making the kind of recommendations and suggestions that you're talking about? Well, actually, when I was at NAJA, I contributed to one of those papers to a Commonwealth inquiry into incarceration of um, Indigenous youth. And um, it, it was part of that, uh, those submissions. Probably 2009 um, was the year of that. Uh, so, look, practically, what, what this looks like is we have something like 75 remote Aboriginal communities uh, throughout the Northern Territory. The number of um, programs that are in those communities that can take an offender through some sort of diversionary program that's meaningful for them, that actually uh, delivers uh, a, a, um, a, a, a recompensing activity back to the offender, it doesn't exist. There are a handful of bush uh, camps, um, but again, they, there's, they, there should be essentially one for every community. If, if someone's taken from one end of the Northern Territory and, and sent to a bush camp right at the other end, there's an enormous number of um, uh, you know, language and 
relational issues that uh, that are thrown into that mix. The, the offender needs to be dealt with um, by people who are responsible uh, and are seen to have that authority culturally in their own envi environment. Uh, so the, the, those, when I was at Naja, they, they were the types of submissions um, that we wrote. And in fact, I remember, I think almost the first paragraph um, uh, we, we wrote, there have been so many consultations in this area. Uh, mm. I'm paraphrasing now. Um, we almost feel like there's no need for another consultation, but anyway, we'll tell you again anyhow. So, so that, 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 that is, um, uh, that has been asked for. And, uh, and the other thing is that consultation works well uh, for people that are um, fluent in, in consultation uh, language, in consultation processes. The, 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 the basic idea for this uh, Community Justice Commission um, that, are, that are, uh, is the centre of our policy that oversees all of this actually comes from the communities. It actually comes from uh, people in, uh, in Galawinku, in Melangimbi, in Manangrida, in Nuka, who have said uh, to me directly and to, to many others who work in this area, this is what we need. And so, essentially, all of those threads are, are, are in our in the Territory Alliance Community Justice Commission policy. Daniel, look at um, Darwin and Palmerston specifically, because um, I, I, you know, I would imagine that the communities uh, themselves would deal with things differently to how things are different uh, dealt with in in Darwin yeah. and Palmerston. Absolutely. When when we spoke to the Palmerston mayor. Uh, last year, one of the things that I was literally gobsmacked by was was the fact that um, now I better be careful how I say this. I think I used the term it was official policy. I'm not sure that's the right word for it, but it it is certainly a fact that police will not pick up certain children around Darwin and Palmerston because it's actually safer for those children to be on the street, depending irrelevant of what uh, irrespective of what time of day it is it is safer for them to be on the street than it is for them to be at home so when you talk about these kids um being made to understand uh what what they've done and and how they've hurt people with their crimes uh family or uh, guardian people that are respected by those kids play a role in that and, and my understanding is that, that that level of involvement with a massive percentage of these kids is simply not there. So while you, me, Leon, the courts, um, you know, and, and those people getting involved in these types of scenarios may have the best interests at heart, if that's not pushed from mum, dad, uncle, auntie, grandpa, grandma, it, it, it's almost set up to fail. And, and that's one of the reasons why the current um, approach fails is be, and it's because we have this sort of siloing, this disassociation between different um, government services or NGO services. Uh, criminal justice, uh, you know, the courts deal with the legal process, uh, corrections are separate again, um, families, education, health, uh, and there's very little link or communication between those. 
So a key thing to the, our uh, Community Justice Commission is to be the, the link, the glue between all of those and to ha take a holistic um, approach to it. Because the kids that you just described uh, are slipping between the gaps and, and perhaps you and I, if we had need of those services, we would know how to go about accessing them. But mm. a lot of these kids and their families just don't. And so the, the commission uh, approach that we have um, takes a holistic uh, uh, view and, and actively aims to fill uh, those gaps. Because you're, you're exactly right. There are, you know, what do we, do we have another agency for, for you know, every little scenario? Uh, I, I, I think, you know, we, we would end up um, just having you know, so many agencies. Uh, the inverse of that is the, the commission's approach that we've got, uh, which is holistic, uh, uh, resourced and, and, uh, and empowered to, to actively fill those gaps. So, yeah, very practically, those kids, if it's actually best for them to not be at home, okay, we don't really want them on the streets. What's, what else is there? What, what other sort of residential facility needs to be actually available and appropriate and so on. So that's the, the commission's role to, to, um, to be the glue and fill those gaps. So Theatre Casuarina, a currently, current sitting member is who? Lauren Moss. Lauren Moss. And who, do we know who the CLP candidate is? Uh, yes, he was announced uh, a week or two ago, uh, Tony Schelling. Oh, Tony Schilling, goodness. Okay, all right. Um, and policies, you, you've brought your policies out yet or you're still... Uh, for Pazarina or for general? For general, the generally for the territory. Uh, yes, uh, on our website, we've got um, a, a range of policies um, up there. Um, they aren't all of our policies. Uh, we uh, will reveal others uh, closer to the election. Um, and uh, but but there is a definitely enough up on the website uh, to give anyone an idea of the sort of government uh, that we would um, uh, give that we would deliver. Uh, there's um, a paper up there on some uh, economic directions, um, some uh, criminal uh, justice directions that we've been talking about. Uh, there will be one on education um, very soon. Uh, it's half a dozen sort of you know, broad-based policies. So anyone who's interested in knowing what sort of policies Territory Alliance stand for, there's already plenty of information on the website. Can I please give you a piece of advice, Daniel? Please. You talked about it before and you said that, you know, Territory Alliance is, is really happy to, uh, you know, take the best of both sides of politics and, and sit somewhere in between and, you know, Leon and I believe we coined this phrase with Terry a few months ago, this sensible centre, which I reckon is a great expression. And I think you're right, Leon. I think they're, they're probably the least vocal of, of, of either, either side, if you want to call them that. But we, we spoke with a CLP candidate a couple of months ago, and I, I'm still gobsmacked by it. The more information you can get out there as soon as possible, because people need to know what they're voting on and gone are the days where you can just say well we won't do what they did we'll do the opposite or something different 
Absolutely. You've, you've effectively got two opposition parties at this stage. Mm-hmm. And you're right, you know, you, you've, you've each got your own um, personalities, if you want to call it that, but there's some crossover in there as well. And the last thing you want is for people to get to uh, voting day at the booth and go, well, I don't really know what these guys stand for. Yeah. They all released their policies too late. I'll just stick with what I know. Whether that's left, right or indifferent, that's up to them. But people are craving information right now. The more information, the more policy stuff you can get out there, the better chance you've got of people understanding and, and deciding who they want to vote for. Yeah. Uh, Peter, I, I 100% agree with you on that. Um, not everyone has that, uh, that, that view, uh, but they certainly do. Uh, and um, I'm central uh, uh, in the policy development area of, of Territory Alliance. And so it's certainly I will be um, getting as much uh, policy available as soon as it is possible. Mm. Um, we, we have a, a very flat structure for policy development. Uh, essentially, everyone is welcome. Territory Alliance member or not is welcome to, um, to suggest policy. Um, it's the candidates and MLAs who have the determinative um, vote. Uh, on, uh, on material matters in the party, and that's designed to keep the representation by the candidate or by the MLA um, directly back to the people. There's no ghost board. There's no sort of faceless men in smoky rooms who, are, who decide things. Um, and so if the, the candidates think that that's a, that's a good idea, that's a good policy, we put it out to the members, Territory Alliance members, to vote on. Uh, people can vote online. And essentially, it's a, a sounding board. Are, are, we, are we hearing right? Are we on the right track? Um, do, do most people also think that this is the way to go? And uh, that's the, the, the essence of our policy-making process. So uh, very straightforward. We've had already some great policies that have come from um, uh, people that are not Territory Alliance members, that are from um, not the loony... Uh, fringes, uh, but definitely deep in in um, in their respective territories. But for our context, they make sense, and uh, and so uh, we have embraced those as policies. Well, on that note, uh, Daniel, uh, we think it might be a good time for us to uh, let you take your leave. Uh, appreciate you giving us your territory story. Um, very nice to get to know you, Daniel. I must say that uh, your, your story, your experience uh, certainly uh, puts you in a very strong position to be a good candidate uh, for any party. Uh, and uh, you know, we wish you all the best in August. Leon, thank you so much. Uh, um, if I can um, just uh, finish uh, by saying that uh, I've been able to have a great life here in the Northern Territory. And uh, 20 years ago, a bit like Pete, I ran away from the cold uh, and, and came up to the tropics. And I'm, I just love this place. Uh, in Darwin especially is where I've spent most of my time, but I've, I've travelled a lot to other parts. And I've, I really believe this is the best part of the world and I love it. And uh, we've had a rough uh, recent history, but um, I'm sure that we're going to have a great future. Well, that's good, Daniel. Hey, one last question. How many members you got? 
um, somewhere, something over 450. Uh, I haven't checked for a while, um, but uh, we, it'll, it'll, if it you know, continues on current trajectory, we're probably close to 500 now. Um, so thanks for the reminder. I'll, I'll ask our guy who, uh, who monitors the role and, uh, and find out. When it gets 500, um, I'll put a little post on Facebook. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Daniel Kelly for joining us today on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.